This is Coffee Number Five. I'm your host, Lara Schmoisman. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for being here today in Coffee Number Five. I'm here today with Patrick Mike Guinness. Did I say it okay, Patrick? You did. It's perfect. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. And you probably ask who is Patrick, or probably you read it in the, in the uh, podcast note notes. And this guy is the guy who did you come up with this name? Did you copyright it? What did you do? You need to tell me because I'm completely confused here. So this guy <laughs> did something with the FOMO, or what did you do? Just can you explain to me? Sure, sure. So I actually coined the term FOMO. I invented the word. I didn't invent the feeling because the feeling has been around for longer than I have. But when I was a graduate student at Harvard Business School way back in 2003, I had just lived through 9-11. I was in New York at the time. And I was basically after living through that kind of shock, I just wanted to live every day like it was my last. And so I tried to do everything all the time. And when I went to business school, business school is a place where there's a lot of opportunity. I call it a choice-rich environment. You can take a million classes, go to a million parties, trips, you name it. And I tried to do it all. And I realized that it actually stressed me out trying to do it all and that I had a fear of missing out on all the things that I couldn't do. So I wrote an article in the school newspaper called McGinnis's Two Foes, Social Theory to HBS, all about FOMO and another term called FOBO. And it was the first time FOMO was used anywhere back in 2004. And today it's in the dictionary. And no, I didn't copyright it because I didn't know it was going to get famous. So, oh you know, God. so you can use it without paying me. Oh, such a shame. You could have made a lot of money there. Well, here's the way I think about it. If I had copyrighted it, people would have never paid me. You know, they wouldn't, when it was like not a thing, they wouldn't have called me up and said, we want to use this word. So I had to just, it, it's out there, you know, you can't regret what happened. And, and the cool thing now is that I've written a book about it. I have a podcast called FOMO Sapiens about it. So I'm able to include it in what I do and everybody uses it. I know. And I'm sure it feels really, really nice to come up with the word. I mean, that's so unique. How many people can say that they come up with the word? I don't know. It is kind of fun. And what's cool about it is it's everywhere in the world. In fact, um, most countries I go to, people know exactly what it is. Argentina is not one of them, by the way, but usually they do. And so it's a great way to meet new people because everybody no, wants actually, to Actually, Argentina knows. They really know. Everyone knows what it's for, okay, except good. Daniela, our producer. But don't worry, we told her what it is now and she knows. But everyone, I mean, I'm so intrigued because everyone has this feeling of missing out somehow. Oh, yeah. And how did you experience this? How did you come out that, did you talk to people about this fear or it was something that only you wrote this article because it was only where you what do you were experience? It's, it's fascinating to think about how society has been changed by the internet. And so let's go back to when I was having these feelings. So the year was 2002, 2003, and there was no social media. Okay. Actually, when I was up in Boston, one mile away on the other side of the Charles river, Mark Zuckerberg was making the first version of Facebook. So the, I, a lot of people think that FOMO is all about what you see on Instagram and, and LinkedIn and Facebook. But in fact, 
uh, didn't need that to feel these things because I was in a place where I was on top of, of you know each other with a bunch of other students. We all lived with each other. We all saw what each other was doing. And when you're able to compare yourself to other people and also see what they're doing, you start to feel FOMO even if you don't have technology, right? And so that's what I felt. And I realized it wasn't just me, all of us. It was like this competition to do everything all the time, to take advantage of every opportunity. Now, what has happened since that time and why FOMO is something that's not just felt by some kids up in Boston, but there's something that's experienced all over the world is that the internet has allowed us to do exactly what I felt back in school, which is we can compare ourselves to others easily. We are, you know, we are also able to see what other people are doing. And oftentimes, of course, people, when they put things on social media, they make it look really good, right? And so we all can see what other people are doing. We feel like we should be doing it. And now FOMO is something that is pervasive across the planet. And so you think it got worse because of social media? Definitely. And in fact, if you look at the statistics, um, about 56% of people say that they feel FOMO when they're not near their devices. So we have become conditioned because of our cell phones and social media to constantly be receiving stimuli, emails, news, tweets, Instagrams, you know, you know, all of the things that we do and how we spend our days and we have trained our brains to look for that. And so as a result, when we don't have that stimulus, we feel FOMO. And so it is definitely something that always existed in human beings. We always compared ourselves to others, you know, but it used to be just to our next door neighbors. Now it's to people all over the world and we do it through our phones. Yeah. Well, my main concern with social media is that the grass of the neighbor always looks greener. Exactly. Uh, so I feel like it's not about only FOMO, but it's why it looks always greener. Is only FOMO or there is anything else there? Yeah. So here's what's happening when you feel FOMO. If you look at the definition of FOMO, FOMO is an anxiety that is, that is a result of a perception that there's something better out there that's happening than what you're doing right now. So that's the critical word, perception. So for example, let's say that I look at your Instagram feed, right? So you put things on Instagram and I have no idea what was happening the minute before, the minute after, how many filters you put. All I see is that image. And people, especially on Instagram, they're not putting like you know, a picture of their dirty bathroom, right? They're putting a picture of their vacation or something like that or something that happened to them. And so what happens is when I look at that, I don't really know what's truly happening. I have a perception and I'm filling in the blanks with my imagination. And so that's what's happening is that you are the one who's creating all of the noise in your head and disconnecting yourself from reality. And that's where the stress comes from because you can never ever live up to something that is created inside of your own head that's not connected to reality. Wow. That's a lot of information there. <laughs> a lot of process. So tell me about your new book. When all right. The, I want book, to know the book is out. It's out. It came out on May 5th. So okay. I've been... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's into the world now and you can find it online on all the bookstores and everything. And it's also a digital book. So if you can't get to your bookstore, it's still available okay. in the world. And basically what the book is about is about decision-making. So as I mentioned earlier, my original article was about two terms, FOMO, fear of missing out, and FOBO, fear of a better option, which is the idea that we don't like to decide when we have options in front of us because we're hoping maybe there's something better that's going to come along. We don't want to just settle. 
And so even though FOBO never got as famous as FOMO, it's a much bigger problem. And so the book talks about, you know, what causes these two phenomena and then explains to you how to overcome them so that you can live a far more decisive life, not waste time on trying to make decisions, but actually go out and live your life. That's, oh, tell us, give us something. Give us a little bit of something. Of course. Of course. So I'll tell you, I did, um, first of all, I'll, I'm going to tell you something um, here, but then you can, you can also go check out. I did a TED video called How to Make Faster Decisions that you can check out. And it's been super popular. It's gotten like a million views. So I guess people like it and feel like it's useful. Yeah, we'll put, we'll put the link right oh, here. Oh, yeah. Everybody check it out. And How to Make Faster Decisions is about how do we avoid procrastinating and spending time unnecessarily on things that don't matter. And so there's a little trick that I've actually been doing for more than 20 years that I do every day. I swear to God, I do it like three times a day and it makes a big difference. So there's a kind of decision that's many of the decisions that we make that are called no stakes decisions. What is a no stakes decision? It's when you're deciding something that is so unimportant that you won't even remember having made the decision in a couple of days. It has no financial implications, no long-term impact on your life. It's something like, should I wear the blue shirt or the white shirt? Should I wear, uh, should I, should I um, have the chicken or the fish? Should I go to the gym or should I go for a run? Little things like that. It just doesn't matter. But Many people, including myself, you can spend hours on the little things if you add up the amount of time you spend in a day. And it's just not worth the time. So when it comes to a low, sorry, a no stakes decision, what I do is I outsource it. And I specifically, I outsource it to my watch. I look down at my watch, say it's like, should I, you know, should I go to bed at eight or should I go to bed at nine? Well, the left side of my watch is eight. The right side of my watch is nine. I look down at my watch, see where the second hand is, and then wherever it is, that's what I do. And so you could flip a coin. You could, you know, there's all kinds of different ways that you can do this. But basically the idea is you're injecting the drama into your decision. Either of the options is perfectly fine. It's a waste of time to spend any more time on it. You can't decide anyway. So you just get somebody to make the decision for you and then you move on. And I do that all the time. And, it, you know, it's people who do it tell me that it's really made a difference from them. That's so interesting. It's fascinating. And there's so many things that we can do every day just to make your life simpler in so many ways and make, take the time and put it in what really matters. Yeah. And I remember, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it's funny, and I do this all the time. I was talking to my mom about something and, and we were chatting and I was agonizing over this really dumb decision. And my mom said, Patrick, why don't you just ask the watch? And I was... I was sort of like, yeah, you're right. I can't believe I forgot. And so it's something that I, you know, I use all the time and it will just save you time. It's so simple, but it's such a powerful little hack. Yeah, it's, it, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. No problem. And you guys watch the TED Talk and get the book. So I'm sure we're going to get also all the links here. So you guys can get it in any version you want. But I want to get a little more information from you. This is not ending here because I'm finding something fascinating also about you. Because last week we talked with an an author also that we got a lot of information with her about pitching a book and get, getting published. That's difficult and you got it done. But also you do something that is very impressive. You got into the circle of speaking engagement. How do you do that? 
That's Ooh, so impressive. It's so hard. Let me tell you. Okay. Yeah. Listen, a book helps with the speaking stuff, but it isn't enough. And this is the thing that I learned with the, my first book, which was called The 10% Entrepreneur, is about how people can become entrepreneurs without quitting their day job. So it's like, I have a job at a bank and on the side, I'm starting a business, right? And it was a popular book and it was published all over the world, but I couldn't get anybody to bring me in to speak. Mm-hmm. I got a talk at Google here and there. I'd get little things here and there, but it was never possible to build a speaking career. Why is that? Because companies were afraid of the message that I was giving. They said, we don't want our employees to work on side projects. We don't want to encourage mm. them to do these things. Even though they were doing it anyway, even though this is the future, a lot most companies, other than my friends at Google and some other companies, just didn't want to talk about it. And so my first lesson for those of you who want to build a speaking career is you have to realize that certain topics are going to be scary to certain organizations and you will never be able to ever get a gig out of that. The only people who wanted to have me were universities and startup organizations and they're wonderful, but they don't have any money to pay you. So that was one lesson. Now, what's happened with the FOMO uh, sort of in FOBO stuff and the work I do now is that it's solving a problem that everybody has. It's a much broader discussion. It's something that can be applied to anybody. And so as a result, I found that there's far more interest in having me come. At the same time, I've spent the last four years building up my profile and doing all kinds of interviews and I have a podcast and I did a TED Talk. And so all of those things help to create um, sort of a awareness of my work. And so I get a lot of, it's really cool, just people coming out of nowhere asking me if I want to do talks for them. So that is, it's, it's it, all the friends of mine who do speaking and, and a lot of writers do, um, we all know that it's, it, it looks, when you've gotten some speaking and, and you start to become more known, it looks like it just happened overnight. Mm-hmm. But no, it's, a, it's something that takes years of hard work and I would also say there's all these speaking agents out there. And I have, you know, most people say like, you know, and it's true, speaking agents don't really generate that much work for them. They usually have to generate it themselves. I see. So, but there's any way to pitch yourself to start talking? Yes. So here's what I recommend to people. In the beginning, talk mm-hmm. anywhere for free. Just Give as many speeches as you can. Try to get some of them on video. Build relationships and get it down so that you have a great message and it's original, have a great presentation and all that sort of stuff. And then as you get more well-known and, you know, in the beginning, I would like call people and say, can I speak at your event? And I would just be happy to be there. I didn't expect any money. As you get more well-known and people start asking you, that's when you say, oh, I'd love to do your event. What's your budget? And then you, that's what you have to do. You have to flip the script. So it's kind of like any other entrepreneurial venture. In the beginning, you're, you can't even get people, you, can, you can't even give away your product. And then once people start to realize that there's value there, you have to flip it over and start saying, listen, I'd love to do your thing. I'd love to be at your event. But you know, I, what, I have to understand if you can compensate me or not. Oh, that's a tough one. Super hard, super hard. I'm sure, I'm sure. But also, I mean, as you were growing as an entrepreneur, you had, I'm sure, to change yourself. You had to market yourself. You had to learn how to become this entrepreneur. What parts of yourself you feel that you had to change in order to be able to market yourself and to become that person that it was attractive to your market? 
Yeah, this is so important. And it, it was really been a process for me. So this is, I love this question because I think, you know, we live in a time where we're all told to have a personal brand, but you know, what does that mean? Right. How do we figure that out? Yeah. And so I actually, I work with a, uh, an agency that helps me out through thinking through these things. And in the beginning, and I worked with another one before, which was not, I didn't get much out of that. And I'll tell you what changed is that in the beginning with my first book, I didn't want my, I don't want to be sort of my name or my face to be associated with it at all. I just wanted the book to be out there and the book would stand for itself and Patrick Wood is not going to show up anywhere. And what I realized, of course, is that you are an essential part of the story that you're telling, right? Yeah. And you have to be comfortable putting yourself out there and you have to know where the line is in terms of what you're sharing and what you're not sharing. So you don't have to live your life like a public figure. I mean, it doesn't have to be that you're, you know, you put a camera in your bathroom like Big Brother, but you have to know that you know you have to be comfortable and also you have to know what are the values that you're going to put out there as as you know what is patrick who is he that's exactly the advice i will give to my clients all the time yeah. that you need to build that persona and decide what you feel comfortable sharing and it doesn't have to be exactly the same person that lives in your house and you don't have to share absolutely everything is you create your own avatar and the the kind is the person you want to show but what particular things you had to change or modify the way you dress the way you speak what ah, it's a great had? question okay so here oh all kinds of stuff i mean listen i had always done public speaking as a kid so um okay i'll give you a couple of examples this is <laughs> funny number one is i i definitely had to learn and this is i have to thank my team and somewhat client who i work with um for part of this is like it's, I was much more academic. I wanted to give like a lecture that went on forever. And he always reminds me, you have to deliver value. You have to give people things that they can use. So you had not, to dumb it, dumb it down too. I would say more about like, make it less about like the theory and more about the practice. Yeah. That's been important to me. Number two is I definitely changed my style, my clothing style, because they said I dressed like a nerd. And so I thought I dressed nice, but whatever. I got new clothes. <laughs> 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 I actually did. I, I got um, a friend of mine who has great taste to advise me. And so I kind of upgraded. It was like one of those 80s movies where you go to the store and buy all the clothes. Like I did that with um, a friend oh, of mine. Oh, <laughs> did, did you get a video montage of that? I wish. That's what I wish I had. Oh but I have a friend who she used to work at Rag and Bone. And so she got like 80% off. And so I went one day and she literally was just like, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. And so then you learn, of course. And so I, I did think about that. And then, I, you know, you great pictures. And, and I think the other big thing is that you have to become humble about asking people, you know, I want to be on your show. I want to do this. So if in the, you, know, you think people, when you write a book, you have this illusion that people are going to knock on your door and put you in newspapers and magazines and podcasts. That is not the case. You need to go out and build relationships with people, get to know them and not be transactional if you really want to get your message out there. And so I've had to do that. And it, it takes some humility because, you know, you get a lot of rejection, a lot yeah. of rejection. And that's okay. Yeah. And it's hard to deal with the rejection also. It's very hard. And you know what happens? Like now when people ask me if to come on my podcast, I'm, I'm, I never ignore people. I always answer them back. I'm always nice to them, even if it's not a fit, because I know what it feels like to be on the other side of that. Absolutely. And also something that I learned is that we need to value our time. We need to learn, is it 
worth it for me to do this? Because I think when we're trying to save money being an, an entrepreneur, is it worth it to use my time and try to do this that I'm not a professional at? And I, it's not going to be as good if I do it myself if, than if I hire someone else or I hire someone else, I invest that money and I use my time to do what I, I'm better at. Yes, absolutely. For for example, all the social media, the website stuff, presentations, things that I tried to do on my own and I did a terrible job. Um, Facebook marketing, all the things that that are integral to this stuff. And when you find a partner to do it for you, you realize how bad you were, and you realize how much more time you have to do the things that you're good at, which is, you know, creating the message, writing the book, speaking, and stuff like that. So it is really important to be willing to invest. Um, but also to measure your impact. Yeah. And in this world, presentation is so important. I don't know how important you found it in your world that it is. But in my world and in the digital world, it's so important how we present things. And because the competition is huge in any space right now. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think creativity is so important. And one thing that I've noticed with working with my team too, in, in terms of our digital media strategy, is they're constantly pushing me outside of my comfort zone. They come up with these crazy ideas that I would have never done a couple of years ago. And I remember being like, I don't want to do that. And now um, I, I, I now get it. And I enjoy pushing myself. I will say one thing though, is that I remember when Snapchat was was kind of big and everybody said you had to be on Snapchat. And, you know, I just didn't like Snapchat. And so I said no and I didn't do it. And I would say that, like, if there's something you just don't want to do and you hate, don't feel like you have to do it because there are other ways to get your message across. Like, I love Instagram and so, you know, and, and, and Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff. So I didn't like Snapchat. I don't do it. I, I and, and frankly, I don't think that my my audience is there anyway, so it doesn't matter. So that was me not having FOMO because everybody said I had to be there and I just didn't want to be. Well, I don't believe that. Uh, I probably you saw my website and in my website, I always talk about an ecosystem that we try. We need to be in as, as many places that we can be in the ecosystem, mm -hmm. but also we need to be in places that fit our brand, not in everywhere just to be. And if it doesn't fit your audience, why are you gonna be there? It's a waste of your time and your money. I totally agree. And then there, what happens too, which is interesting, I'm sure you see this, is like, as you're, um, like, you know, I have a new book out, it's different than my first book. And so my customer or my community is actually in different places than it used to be. So LinkedIn has become a really powerful place for me these days in a way that it wasn't five years ago. And so being, and, and, and also like social networks change and, and media changes. And so keeping an eye on where your customer is and where they're spending their time online is an important part of making sure that you stay relevant to them. Yeah, but also we evolve as a yes. professional, as a business person, but also the world evolve and all these mediums evolve and the audience evolve. So we need to keep up with them. You do, absolutely. And I think that is a huge job and you can't do it alone, that's for sure. Yeah, oh, teamwork is essential. What's that thing they say, teamwork makes the dream work? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh yeah, well, we have, I have a huge team and we, I love my team. And it's the best, best team ever. And I wouldn't be able to do what we don't do without them. And we have, I, we always talk about this. Yesterday we talked to, with Billy Blank Jr. 
about that he's in New York too. Mm. And we have a, a, a team challenge every month, which you sh should jo join us. And the one who wins the challenge needs to ch uh, choose next challenge. Daniela, who was a winner of last month's challenge, chose now that everyone needs to do a J-Lo choreography. Oh my goodness. For the next challenge. I'm not so, doing that challenge with you, but. <laughs> oh, maybe you should. We, Danny, what do you think? We should start challenging our, our guests too? Maybe. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for being here today. It was such a pleasure to have you. It was my pleasure. Thanks and good luck. Okay, thank you so much. It was so good to have you here today. See you next time. Catch you on the flip side. Ciao, ciao.